This is Rocks to Roots, a podcast presented by the Spokane Conservation District. This podcast series is intended to share education and resources related to land management, conservation practices, and celebrate some of the great stewards of our land here in our region. Wow, we just had such an awesome talk with Tom Foote of Foothills Farm. Learned so much. He is really good at just putting everything, one, in perspective for the consumer, and two, making it really easy to digest all of the information that he just gave us um, Mm. in regards to farming and conservation practices and how to build soil and just an awesome guy all around. Yeah, I I was just so excited to hear about him building his farm and all the stuff, all the practices that he has into it. And I just like made me want to like make my own farm in my backyard. I'm not going to do that, but I, I want to go to his farm and like take a tour and just learn about all the things he does there. Cause it just sounds so amazing. The spices and the, and the herbs that he makes. It's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's so cool, and I want some of his pesto and some of his horseradish. Yes, definitely for the holidays. <laughs> well, and it's just great to know that these farmers are such great teachers. Like we have, mm. they have this abundance of knowledge that um, you know maybe we don't necessarily go straight to farmers to kind of find this knowledge and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it's great to I don't know. It's just like a it's a great surprise. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Listening it- to them and learning from them and picking up on all these different terms. Mm. We talk about this term permaculture a lot in the episode. I think I'm going to start the episode with that so everyone knows what permaculture is because we say it probably a dozen times in the show. Yes, he is the permaculture guy. He was our go-to for Farm and Food Expo. Mm. So, Well, we better not waste any more time because we got a lot to get into. So here we have Tom Foote, owner of Foothills Farm. We say permaculture a lot in this episode. Can you explain that real quick? Because I don't even know what it is, and we said it so many times. Permaculture is a like a shovel or a hoe. It's a tool in my mind. Mm. I don't do permaculture. I use permaculture. Permaculture is a design. It has turned into a philosophy developed by two Australians, Bill Mollison and uh, and Holmgren, Um, and it is a it is a design tool centered around three core ethics, care of the earth, care of people, and sharing of the surplus. Mm. Around those three core ethics are 12 design principles that have followed it step by step will allow you, and within those principles are myriad techniques that Mollison and Holmgren, they looked around the world at all these different cultures, Mm. indigenous and otherwise, to look at the most sustainable farming and frankly, living uh, uh, approaches, and put those together into a framework called permaculture, permanent culture, mm-hmm. that is originally used for agriculture, but that can be used for building community. And in my case, I've embraced it into building, you know, into, into, into my personal uh, way of doing things, and can be used in the design of businesses. Mm. Um, the 12 principles, I don't know them all. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm, just, I'm bad, I'm bad. But it will lead you to the design of systems that mimic 
and sometimes improve on natural systems. And I want to go back just for a second. You know, if used in the construction of business, there's big, big questions being asked now. Can permaculture exist, coexist with capitalism? Mm. And I've been thinking a lot about this, and absolutely. If businesses were formed based on permaculture uh, 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 ethics and principles, they would result in more socially conscious and, um, and humane organizations that would value uh, their workers, their societies, and, 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 and not be just so rampantly laissez-faire as things are now. Mm. But it's, it's, a, it's a great design tool for, again, agriculture, community, personal life, mm. um, and I've embraced it fully, and it has allowed us to get where we are on our farm and in our business as well. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, to this episode of Rocks to Roots. In the studio today, we have Tom Foote, the owner of Foothills Farm. Tom, how are you doing today? We're good. Good. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, I know that you were one of the first people that I thought of when I thought of this podcast <laughs> um, about a guest that I wanted to have on here. You've been a speaker for us a few times at the Farm and Food Expo, and I just know that your knowledge and expertise in farming is just going to be super valuable to our listeners. So. I hope so. Yeah, thank you for being here. So um, why don't you just tell us about yourself and tell us about Foothills Farm? I have to say that I, I love, I absolutely love the uh, the Rocks to Roots. Oh, because thank you. when we moved down here, um, we moved down here after 30 years in Alaska. And my wife and I have gardened in zones one, I mean, which is the, the frozen tundra, to, uh, <laughs> to zone eight or nine, which is southern Illinois and, and those kind of areas. But uh, when we moved down here, we bought a piece of land, 10 acres in the woods, uh, up on Highway 2, and we really had no idea of what we were getting into um, because I didn't know much when we moved down here. This was 2011, fall of 2011. Mm. So we moved down here onto the land, and after, after just a short while, I realized what we had moved on to was clay, <laughs> I, I know, Phil Small, I know it's not clay, it's, it's silt, it's a grain size above clay, but uh, silt and fractured basalt because the, our land is on, was on yep. the side of, lake, of Glacial Lake Columbia. And so, so it was literally uh, rocks to roots because <laughs> at that point we started growing, uh, growing our soil. But um, I'm ex-military brat. You know, hippie from San Francisco, worked my way up to Alaska, met my wife there in this little Eskimo village, um, public librarian, university librarian, television game show host, radio DJ, uh, fisherman, dog musher, all this kind of stuff. And, um, and then we, my wife and I then left. I went back to school. We came back to Fairbanks. And, uh, and then around 2009 or so, we, we knew that we were going to be retiring and so you can't retire in, I mean, we couldn't retire in Alaska. The cost of living is just too high. And, it's, mm. and it took me 30 years to realize I'm just not a winter person. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so we'd come down through Spokane a couple of times on different trips. So we then went, came down three different, three years, three different seasons. And we liked it here. Mm. Uh, Spokane is about as big a city as we could ever live close to. We're small town mm. people and always have been. And so we found this land, put a bid on it. And, uh, and bought it and moved down. Then the fall of 2011, drove down the Alcan Highway. And uh, 
you know, and moved in and started started doing things. And when we moved in, I had, I mean, I had no idea. I, I wasn't a farmer. I mean, I, and I'm still not a farmer. I don't get up at four <laughs> and, you know, go do work and come in for my wife who's cooking bacon and eggs. Um, but uh, but uh, I, I really had no idea. My wife knew plants better than I did. Oh, really? Yeah, she was. She could identify them. I mean, we had box gardens in Alaska, and I would I would raise you know basil because I make a lot of pesto, mm-hmm. uh, basil's and, and and squashes and stuff like this. Mm. But uh, but when we got down here, I mean, I I really I was just dirt dumb. I mean, I just didn't know much, and so. Uh, we heard then about um, permaculture. I'd read about permaculture, and there was a class being offered in January, from January to April. So it was expensive, but I signed up for that. Where was that mm. class at? That was over at the Methodist Church on around Perry District. Oh, really? And uh, Michael uh, Michael Polarski Skeeter was the uh, was <laughs> the instructor on that class, and so I met him. I met. I started thinking about permaculture. As I went to class, I would go home and I would start then uh, mm. build, building the farm. But, so, so ex-military kid, ex-military brat. My wife and I are both ex-military brats. We're just used to moving around. So when we came here, uh, we did what we always do, and that's immediately start trying to start build a community. Okay. And permaculture is a tool for that. But anyway, go ahead. So was it really just that first permaculture class that got you said, I want to farm and this is what kicked it off for you? Well, we knew up in Alaska. I mean, we had always, like I said, we had always gardened all of our lives, okay. either, both when we were together and, and, and not. Um, but uh, when we moved down here, we knew we wanted to get a little more serious about it. We wanted to be more in control of our food, which mm-hmm. is a goal, you know, especially now with COVID that a lot of people are starting to wake up to oh, and yeah. realize mm-hmm. this too. Big time. And and I jokingly say that I wanted to I wanted to be about 150 feet away from my food source. As it turns out, <laughs> we're 125 feet away from. It. I love it. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. So we moved down here and we started we started building. Nice. And so you do or you are an organic farm. Not a certified organic. Okay. But we we use organic methods, sustainable mm-hmm. growing. When we moved down here. We at the first far, small small farm conference mm-hmm. um, that we went to, Beth Robinette and Joel Williamson at the end of that meeting said, uh, "Hey, we have an idea. You know, a farmer-owned aggregator type of uh, co-op. Uh, if you're interested, come to this room." Mm-hmm. And so we went to that room. We talked to them. They outlined their it was their master's program, I think. Uh, anyway, and so they outlined what they wanted. Tori volunteered to be on the board. And so she helped get it started. And um, it, one of the stipulations of Link Food Co-op is that you use no synthetic chemicals mm. um, and, and you use sustainable methods. And mm-hmm. so uh, so we're not, again, we're not certified. We'll never be a certified organic. We just don't have, feel the need to. Uh, but, uh, but what's gratifying is we've, after nine years now, we've starting to gain a reputation for uh, for good food, mm. good soil, sustainable mm-hmm. methods and high high nutrient value foods without being certified. So that was Awesome. Well, and I'm really excited. We actually get to have Link Foods on our next episode. We're oh, going to cool. be talking to Brian Estes. So. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah, you know. Link has been so wonderful for this community and the farmers. And so I keep joking with, with Brian that he looks, he looks a lot like the actor Ryan 
Ryan Reynolds. What? He does. Ooh. You'll see. I'm even more excited. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, ask him if he starred in, uh, you know, Deadpool or something like that. I love it. <laughs> All right. So back to farming. Um, so what are some environmentally friendly practices that you've implemented to kind of reduce those chemical insecticides that you put on your property or that you use in farming? Every, every winter, as, as most farmers, as many farmers do, especially fall, small farmers um, like me, um, especially ones starting out just ignorant, um, every winter, all winter long, I Google. I use Google. I use YouTube. I, I, I buy books. I read them. And from that study and then from permaculture, my permaculture classes as well, um, I learned a lot about biological control of insects. Oh. One example, for example, is instead of using pesticides to protect, um, to protect our, um, our artichoke plants, um, which get covered in a dark black aphid called an artichoke aphid, um, I discovered the flower alyssum. And alyssum is a low-growing, beautiful little plant that you plant it in the spring and it starts spreading around there. What alyssum does is it attracts, it attracts insects that predate on aphids, that eat aphids. Oh. That's mm. one example. Another uh, sustainable method we, you, people can use is when I grow squash, I designed our farm to have 36 different beds uh, because we're, we farm one acre out of 10 and we specialized in herbs and spices. So 36 beds gives me a lot of versatility. So these beds are all six feet wide and either in 20 to 30 feet long. Hmm. So if I'm growing, if I'm growing uh, um, squashes and, or, or, or cucumbers or, or something uh, that are susceptible to insect predation, what I'll do is on the outer two rows of these beds, I'll plant uh, uh, um, alliums, onions, mm. you know, scallions or 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 uh, leeches. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is it? Potato leeks. Oh, leeks. Le- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, was I don't, I don't have any leeches. You know, <laughs> I got some slugs on my land, but no leeks. You know, I, I don't do that. You know, I don't encourage that kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, so they'll be on the outside. Hot pepper plants, um, um, paprika pepper or cayennes, mm. this kind of stuff that typically aren't attractive to insects, I'll plant those on the outer two edges. And on the inner, inner two rows, then, I have my vulnerable plants. Mm-hmm. So they have to, these insects won't really want to go through the, 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 uh, um, the, the other plants on the outer edges. Right. They typically don't to get to these, the vulnerable plants. The major thing we do, though, I, I'm finding is this is after years of just, you know, uh, it's taken me every year I walk around my place, you know, and I look at something and I'll say, duh, <laughs> you know, hello. Um, because our one acre, we have one acre within fence, and because it's on a hillside in a pine forest, we practice a growing uh, a growing method called agroforestry mm-hmm. and it's a variation of agroforestry basically you're growing in the woods mm. you know you have open spaces um, with that what what that means for us is between our downhill edge of our garden of our growing area and the open fields beyond that is about yeah I don't know you know 500 feet 600 feet quarter mile mm. Insects that predate on my neighbor's gardens down below in the flat open areas, 
they don't they're not forest insects they don't come through the oh. pine the pine trees and the fir trees they don't know my my food is up there and so we don't have the same especially with my fruit trees we don't have the same level of predation we don't have the same insects my pears my apricots my peaches they just they rarely are ruined by by insects common insects borers and things like that now I do have to compete with wasps and bees who like to eat my blackberries, but you know I, I can live with that. I plant enough for them and us. But so they don't come through the woods to get to our growing area in there, and so um, you know so so that's another method. But really, at, at a very basic level, the tool I use mm-hmm. instead of uh, instead of herbicides and pesticides is my soil. My mm-hmm. soil, we've been building soil, and I use a, a method called lasagna method, uh, where it's layering brown green. It's just like you build a compost. You build beds, soil on your beds, oh, okay. you know, with brown green, brown green. I use 3,000 pounds of coffee grounds a year. Oh, wow. Oh, wonderful. And two to 300 bags of maple leaves from Brown's Edition. <laughs> so I'll layer this stuff along with some other stuff that I have, and I'll layer this, you know, every fall, mm. two feet thick. So my soil, over the past nine years, I've been able to realize an inch, inch and a half of soil every year. This is on top of, Phil, clay. I'll use clay. (laughs) I I love to tease (laughs) Phil, small. Uh, Clay and rock. And so because I can't go down to to till this stuff up, Mm. although I did twice, Mm -hmm. um, I'm building on top of it. And I I say I tilled twice. Um, The thing about clay, as opposed to loamy soil, clay doesn't have a lot of the macronutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. But what clay is really, really good at is holding the minerals that are necessary for healthy soil. So Mm -hmm. if we can get down into that clay, not very often, and pull it up, and then mix it with our organics, then we have a complete soil. Clay and silt is basically rock dust, which is necessary then for soil, you know, part of soil as well. Mm -hmm. So I say my soil is one of my best tools, uh, you know, so I don't have to use herbicides and pesticides because a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who has this French garden that is just, his his techniques are so amazing. Um, He told me, had to be six or seven years ago, how a plant looks is merely a reflection of the quality of the soil, the quality and health of the soil. So if my plants look good, then that means my soil is doing well. And I start with my soil to provide healthy plants. Because mm-hmm. healthy plants, unhealthy plants, plants that are struggling, that have some downsides to them, they will send out, it's been shown, they'll send out a chemical signal to insects that basically says, come eat me. Oh, really? It, the wow. Insects can sense that it's a weak plant oh. and that they can go do this. Healthy soil, healthy plants will resist that same insect. And even with some, even if, when insects do get to it, 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 it's strong enough and healthy enough that it can survive damage to, uh, by these insects and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. The other thing, I, the other tool I use, again, for, uh, for insect, for uh, to, 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 you know, to not to, to preclude insects, to avoid those, is, um, um, is uh, several things. I mean, I, our farm is, from the very beginning, was designed as a pollinator farm. 
And so everything we grow has flowers mixed in amongst them. Mm -hmm. Our our perennials, our herbs we grow, oregano, all these things that flower, they'll they'll attract pollinators. Mm. Well, pollinators, what do they attract? They attract birds. And yeah. in, our, in our pine forest, we have, every year, we have just these masses of birds. I mean, I have, I put up bat houses, I put up uh, uh, bird houses. And so all su- spring, summer, and fall long, um, our garden is filled not only the sounds of birds, but their presence. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, so they walk around here and they, they eat a lot of these insects as well. Mm-hmm. A quick note about that. <laughs> one of these years I had, one, one year I got some chimes, some wind chimes. Uh-huh. And, and I, you know, I had these wind chimes and they were gorgeous. You know, and they just, I love wind chimes. And so I thought, wow, that would be so nice, you know, to be working down in the garden, you know, da, 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 and have the breeze blowing and wind chimes tinkling and stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, so I put them down there. And after a couple of years, I noticed that, that we didn't have a lot of birds. And it wasn't because of the level activity that we were doing. I mean, you know, making a lot of noise and constructing the garden. I looked at that and I remembered something that airports, airports use sound to drive away geese. Mm. And so as my, as my wind chimes were tinkling, I got the idea that, oh, I bet it's scaring away the I birds. I bet it's scaring away the birds. <laughs> and I took those wind chimes well, off and just the birds came back. Now, wow. association there isn't causation, but still. Um, yeah. Still, they, they came back. And okay. I think that was what it was. It was kind of a newbie's uh, mistake, you know? Yeah. So you obviously have a tremendous amount of knowledge about soil health. I can't believe that, it, you, you know, it just popped into your brain one day. You've credited um, permaculture and agroforestry. What other, like, trainings and resources um, do you credit to? Books. I have a library I built up. Plus, asking people like Chris Ostrander, local experts like Chris Ostrander. Yes. People like I became, in in a mercenary kind of way, uh, you know, I became friends with Phil Small. You know, mm-hmm. not because he's overly friendly, you know, you, you know, we have a checkered relationship, but, but uh, he knows so much. And so I really want to get his knowledge. But no, no, Phil, uh, Phil and his wife, both of them are, uh, Rosemary, they know so much about soil. And Phil just is this soil expert. And so I was able to get to know him, Chris Ostrander. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know if you know him, yeah. uh, other, other experts around here um, and ask them questions. And, yeah. of course, I mean, the online Internet sources, but books as well. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we were – I regularly go – I buy books from Amazon. I buy books from all over the place. <laughs> Amazon's nice because they'll offer, they'll offer lasagna gardening for, you know, twenty nine ninety five for a, a new, <laughs> you know, or a buck fifty for used in decent condition. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I buy the – and I have a bunch of ratty books, you know, that are still usable uh, that I bought over the years. And that's – you know, I read these things constantly. My latest last year was how to grow great, how to grow great garlic. Oh, and I thought I knew. Yeah. I thought I knew until I read this book, and sure as heck, um, <laughs> this spring or this 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 summer's garlic harvest yielded these immense bulbs because of this thing, this book, and this guy who had, who recommended this That's approach. Awesome. So, reading books, winter research, mm-hmm. asking all my friends, um, the the community that I live in, you, cooperative extension. I mean, cooperative extension is this huge resource. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are just 
innumerable uh, sources of uh, ways I got information and continue to do that. And while you say I know a lot about soil, I know very little compared (laughs) to Phil, I find myself as kind of a small farm generalist. I mean, I know a lot about, I know some about a lot of things, and mainly from experience and reading, and I know a lot about (laughs) not very many, a few things that I focused on. But uh, it's all from just, you know, making mistakes, you know, and, and, and learning from them uh, and, and going forward. What are some of the mistakes that you've made? Um, I've made any mistakes. Did I say mistakes? Did I say that out loud? Out loud? Uh, you did. Yeah. calling you out. <laughs> well, a lot of the mistakes were not so much in the soil building uh, area or building my farm. A lot of our mistakes were in um, our business model. We came down here, my wife and I both have social security. We have a couple of small pensions from the state of Alaska. Uh, so, so, while, and so that provides a base of income, not quite enough. So the money we decided to make from our farm was, a, was to supplement that. Our goal being to, at the very minimum, have our farm break even. Mm-hmm. And so if we can do, and we've achieved that about two or three years ago. By break even, I mean, hogs, turkeys, chickens, mm. the feed they consume, selling, selling that meat and other things to, to offset the cost of that feed, the various things, the toys I buy in the year, each year. <laughs> Tori has a job in town, so she has a better okay. resume, so we sent her into town to work. 60% of small farmers have someone on the farm with a, with a full-time job out off that farm. Mm. So, Interesting. Um, so the mistakes we made really were business model mistakes. We came down, and I convinced Tori that because I love to cook, and, and she likes to cook also, but I do most of the cooking, um, that, um, that we, could, we could specialize. We could have a farm, a one-acre farm, that specialized in, in, in unique herbs and spices. Mm. And not even spices at first. I'll, I'll get to that. But herbs, you know, fresh Mm-hmm. Fresh, wholesome, nutrient-dense, uh, fresh, uh, 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 fresh herbs. Mm-hmm. So we put in our hugel beds. We put in some perennials uh, because we're trying to perennialize our farm as much as possible. Because I'm 71 and I'm not getting younger. That was the question I had. Are herbs mainly annuals or perennials? They're both. It depends on your purpose. Okay. Um, Herbs, the herbs we grow are perennials, rosemary, sage, French tarragon, Greek oregano, um, uh, some of the others, uh, they, they come back every year, they're nice, you know, mm-hmm. I, I tend the soil and they, they produce the crops. Um, the, the annuals we, we plant are for specific purposes. Basil I plant, I grow 200 basil every year because I make a bunch of pesto that I sell through the co-op or I sell at conferences like the small farm conferences. <laughs> um, horseradish, a perennial, um, is uh, I grow lots of horseradish because I make horseradish sauce and, and, and we sell that as well. Mm-hmm. The other annuals that we grow, and out of 36 beds, I try not to get too involved with annuals except the ones that I just need for specific purposes. This last year, I decided to branch out. I by goodness, I was gonna, I was gonna grow. <laughs> We've changed our business model again. Fresh herbs didn't, they didn't work. No one buys fresh herbs. Very mm-hmm. few people mm-hmm. buy fresh mm-hmm. herbs. Um, 
old folks like me, they, you know, they walk by and they'll say, oh, that smells so good. You know, and, and they'll say, I've been cooking for 30 years. I'll be damned if I'm going to cook anymore. <laughs> <laughs> people, Hillary, like your age or younger, they'll walk by and they'll say, oh, that smells so good. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know how to cook. You know, so they don't yeah, right. buy them. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so. I had a bunch of parsley in my fridge that I just finally was like, I'm going to tackle this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make something. Well, with plus, this. they get a bad rap. I mean, you go, mm-hmm. into, yeah. you go into Fred Meyers or Yolks and you buy a, a plastic clamshell of, ba- of basil or something like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that night you need five leaves. Yeah. Next night, you plan a meal so you can use maybe five more leaves, and after that, it starts rotting. Yeah. Yeah. People don't realize that you can put it on a coffee, uh, on, a, on a cookie sheet, put it in an oven at 125, and dry it for half an hour, and you've got dried herbs then. So you never mm. have to waste it, but people don't think like that generally. So it rots, and they think it's a waste of money, these fresh herbs. Mm-hmm. Plus, cooking with fresh herbs is different than dried herbs. Dried right. herbs you put into the oil, heat the oil to release the fragrance and all this kind of stuff, mm. and then add your you know soups and stews. Fresh herbs you want to add at the end of your meal, at the end of your cooking. Sorry. <laughs> at the end of your cooking, um, you know when it, before you know the last half hour, forty minutes of cooking, that's when you take and you take your your, your sage or your rosemary or, or French tarragon and you throw that in. You're making a nice uh, sort of beef stroganoff, you know, and mm. you take that fresh ter- uh, French tarragon and pop it in there. Um, so it's a different way of cooking, and chefs have the same problem. They don't know how to cook with fresh herbs so much. A lot of their main dishes in these restaurants are from recipes. Mm-hmm. And so many chefs, while they're adventurous, they tend to be conservative as well. Yeah. But uh, so this okay. last couple of years, this last year especially, I decided that we would focus not just on, on herbs, which we now have a business of dried herbs that we sell in packets. Mm -hmm. But I decided that I would focus, and I have been thinking about more and more over the years, um, temperate climate spices. So when you think of spices, you think of Thailand, you think of India, you think mm. of you know you think of cumin and and all these exotic spices. Wait, and sorry, temperate temperate climate climate. Our climate is a temperate climate. Okay. Winters, springs, and summers. Okay, okay. Sorry, in this latitude, 48, 49 degrees is a temperate climate. <laughs> okay. So, so um, and there. So now we produce. We either grow or produce nine, ten maybe 11 different spices or spice combinations. Awesome. This year I planted a bunch of of a paprika pepper, a Hungarian paprika pepper that grows in Eastern Europe. Two kinds of paprika, hot Spanish, sweet, Eastern European. I've decided to grow a bunch of that because I wanted to make smoked paprika powder Mm, and paprika. I also grew a lot of cayenne. I grew a lot of jalapenos. and so those are examples of spices that do great here. And so this year I've just, I've been drying like crazy, you know, and so now I have, I'll, I'll rattle off a few of the spices. Yeah, please. I have, I have sweet paprika. I have smoked sweet paprika. I have cayenne powder. I have smoked cayenne powder. I have red pepper flakes made from cayenne. I have fennel seed, mustard seed, Uh, celery seed, mm-hmm. um, not basil. None of those produce that kind of thing. Um, there's nine right there, and there's about three or four more mm. of spices. These are spices anyone can grow in their garden. That sun-loving spices, and uh, you know, 
they'll, they'll grow here just fine because this climate is hot. It's hot and dry. And if right. to overcome the dry, you have the irrigation, but it's hot, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. and our little piece of heaven in that pine forest, we have a western and southern exposure at, a, at about a five-degree slope. Hmm. So we get 10, 10 hours of 10, 11 hours of, of just sunlight coming, you know, even as it sets, you know, beating down on these 36 beds. And the other part of it is that because our land is on a bit of a slope, the sun here is up in the sky. I forget the angle at which the sun rises. But every bit of slope here makes the sun, makes the, the, the photons of the sun, the sun rays, a little bit closer to perpendicular, like the equator. Mm. So okay. our place, and some of our friends call our place the banana belt, because I can grow things in at our farm. I have a seven-month growing season. I never, I, I don't, I, I have to think back. I hardly ever get a frost after April 15th or before October 15th. Mm-hmm. Now, the daylight, you know, reduced light, cooler temperatures, yes. But still, I can push my envelope of my growing season quite a bit mm-hmm. compared to my friends who on Peon Prairie who they'll get a frost mid-June, you know, or mid-September. Mm-hmm. You're right. And so, uh, so I'm able to gr- make and grow these spices. So now we've expanded our business model. Dried herbs, teas, um, mm. spices, spice combinations. My wife also then she makes um, uh, some CBD salve that is that is that has quite an audience, pretty much around the country uh, yeah. in Alaska mm-hmm. and friends that who who buy that from her definitely and tinctures and uh, and infused oils mm-hmm. and for that I grow a little bit of uh, CBD uh, uh, marijuana plants you know and that what she needs you know we dry it she infuses oil with it and hmm. and then we do that and what made you decide to take that venture and go into that medicinal the medicinal salves and adding that to your farm story uh, tori always kind of she she had a she had an attraction to ayurvedic medicine and, and so okay. the chinese you know the asian medicine system and uh, and so she knew quite a bit about it but she's really just really become much more fluent in herbs of this region that 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 uh, that the native americans in this region have known about for for centuries and we're starting to learn about she's learning about them and so she forages both in our forest, the woods we live in, which mm. is another benefit of farming in the woods, agroforestry. <laughs> right. She forages, she wild uh, wild forages there, plus um, a lot of the plants that we grow are specifically for uh, for her for her use. And we used to when we started, you know, people would say, "Oh, what do you grow?" And we say, "Well, we grow culinary and medicinal herbs." And within just a short while, we realized, no, 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 every medicinal herb is a culinary herb. Oregano, great antibiotic. Hmm. Um, uh, many of these other herbs, I, I she's, she's, the, I jokingly <laughs> say, I'm infrastructure, she's knowledge, you know, so, uh, so she knows, you know, a lot of the, the medicinal values of these common uh, culinary herbs and, uh, and what they can do and how to use them, what combination to put them in with other herbs. So she forages a lot and makes her, makes her, her she also makes teas out of some of these things. Um, and so, um, 
we decided to expand that because, well, frankly, it makes us, a, you know, a, a decent chunk of money, her salves do. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in main market, you'll see a small little vial of CBD, you know, uh, salve or something, mm-hmm. and it's 60 bucks. Well, she sells a four-ounce jar, you know, for, for not quite that much. And, uh, and so, and it works very effective, and so people like it, and uh, so we've built a bit of a business on that. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned for more Rocks to Roots right after this. As harvest season begins to come to a close, make sure you continue to support the farmers in our area by checking out final farm stand hours. There's plenty of nutritious and delicious produce still available. COVID restrictions has left many farmers and ranchers without businesses to buy their product. We can't let that food go unused and left to rot in the field. Make a point to get to know your farmer and get to know your food better in these last few weeks and stock up for the holidays. Complement your celebrations with healthy, nutritious, and delicious food that supports our local economy. You can learn more at southspokanefarmcorridor.com. It's just about time for the Spokane Conservation District's best annual tree sale. Pre-sale period will begin February 1st and last until mid-March. Pickup days for your trees and shrubs will be in April. This year, we have over 20 different species to choose from. One in particular will be huckleberries. Pricing starts at five seedlings for just $10. Be one of the first notified when the sale opens by signing up for our tree sale mailing list at sccd.org. We will sell out of select species within the first week for sure. Sign up today at sccd.org or email info at sccd.org and request to be on the 2021 tree sale mailing list. So you mentioned that you're um, trying out these different spices, and then we have the medicinal salves. And so I know that one of your one of the things you have on your website is better soil is better flavor. And so, how important is it to you to you know have unique products, and why do your products stand out so much? Is it just because they're unique? Because of your soil? Because of our soil. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to be that, and the lack of chemicals that we use. Mm-hmm. Our, the inputs onto our farm, part of permaculture is reduce external inputs is one of the principles of, of, uh, of permaculture. And so we, we try to do that, but, you know, if we don't always succeed. Um, so what we do is we go, we go local in inputs. We try to, the leaves, you know, the maple leaves and oak leaves from Brown's oh, okay. Edition. Um, the coffee grounds mm-hmm. from this one coffee stand, Northside Espresso. So oh, have, shout out. I have to shout out to, <laughs> yeah, my, to definitely. my favorite. I've been, I've been getting coffee grounds from them for, oh, six years now? 3,000 pounds a year every single year. Did you just go up to them and ask if you could have them? I did. We talked about it, and I gave them a bucket, some eight-gallon kitchen bags, and they agreed to to separate the plastic from the coffee grounds. And that was the big thing because coffee stands use a lot of plastic, pop tops, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they use Thomas Hammer coffee grounds. Thomas Hammer is, while their coffee is not organic, they buy their coffee from coffee uh, plant coffee growers on the slopes of mountains 
And I was talking to him mm. about this one time. Because huh. people ask me, aren't you worried about coffee grounds and the pollution? And I say, well, I've thought about it and I've investigated it. and eh, not really. They grow, they get their coffee grounds from higher up in the mountains. Mm. Chemicals are expensive to buy and expensive to carry up to these plantations. Right. So the growers use very little. Mm. And then the coffee comes down and it goes through all these different processes, roasting and drying and cleaning and washing until the coffee grounds comes to me with little, if any, uh, any contamination. I'm just right. not worried. Plus now I've gone full circle and I get, I get uh, burlap. I'm trying to reduce all the plastic on my farm. Mm. Wonderful. Um, and because landscape fabric, while it's nice and wonderful and beautiful, it lasts for a certain amount of years and it breaks down into microplastic pollution in our soils. I don't want that on my farm. Yeah. Since mm-hmm. I've become aware of it, I've started substituting burlap from their coffee bean bags, which they are begging to give away. Yeah. Oh, wow. And then I can go to call Thomas Hammer, and once in a while they'll have a bin full of the chaff from roasting their coffee. And so I have three products from coffee. Coffee, contrary to some urban myth, does not acidify the soil. It's great nitrogen. It's great organics. Um, and so, so I've, it's an example of an external resource that, I've, that we've adopted that now I've been able to expand to get almost every facet of that resource, the beans, the bags, the, the, uh, um, the chaff, and keeps it all out of the waste stream, hmm. which it, as, a, as a sustainable farm, or as a farm using sustainable methods, if I can keep this stuff out of the waste stream, to me that's, that's, that's a huge, a huge thing. Um, and so I got carried away. <laughs> I forgot the question. The original question was, but we try to reduce our inputs to make it local so that our soil is local. Right. What does that mean? The soil, the biology in my compost that I add to my soil, the, the bacteria, all the stuff that makes up biology in the top six inches of soil which without those top six inches of soil, we would not have civilization, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's the root zone. Um, the biology of, of my compost that I add to my soil creates this commonality among the bacteria. My plants eat, my plants grow in that same soil. That same bacteria is taken up and goes into my plants, which goes into my guts, so that the bacteria in my guts can be traced back, I think, without too much exaggeration, directly to my compost, to the leaves from Brown's edition, to the <laughs> coffee stand, you know, the coffee from the coffee stands. Mm-hmm. And so the food that we grow on our farm, far from, you know, not just being grown locally, mm-hmm. it is, it's a product of mm-hmm. this region's biology. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, when you eat, you know, when you eat my pesto, it came from here. Yeah. The bacteria in that pesto is from is is from here. I mean, the bacteria then in your gut from my pesto. Mm-hmm. It's from brown. You you've you've hooked into Brown's edition coffee grounds. You know, so we create a biome in a sense with our with our gut biome and all of our uh, all of our all of our um, the products that small farmers using both organic and sustainable methods, all, the, all of us in this region who do this, and they're a sizable number, are creating this, this library of bacteria that 
I don't know how to. I, I get I get not emotional about it, but I get you know borderline mystical about it. You know mm-hmm. that, right. uh, that 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 the it food is. is all one. We are we are of the soil. Carl Sagan used to say we are all stardust. We are all soil. We are mm-hmm. all in this, uh, especially if you buy from local farmers mm-hmm. or you grow in this method. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not related to tomatoes from Mexico. I'm not right, related yeah. to avocados from Peru. Right. I am related to the artichokes I grow on my farm and the tomatoes I grow on my farm. They're all part of me. And when I eat those and when I, to be indelicate, when I poop, <laughs> that, while, I don't use that, <laughs> while I don't use that on my farm, still, um, it, you know, it, it goes into my septic system. Mm-hmm. My septic field is part of this same thing. Mm-hmm. It's, all, it's all this system that, that, we, that we create. Mm-hmm. This and big uh, circle of local <laughs> life. The circle of life which yes. is, is, is that way, absolutely. Yeah. And putting those dollars back into our local economy, too. Yeah. Yep, and there's more and more small important. farmers here, and there's more and more bartering going on. There's more, you know, <laughs> uh, we have uh, every once in a while there are meetings. There's a convergence in September that took place with a bunch of uh, permaculture farmers. And, uh, and, and so we get, have these get-togethers, and, uh, you know, and we're all – you know, it's funny, we have open houses. We have two parties a year at Foothills Farm. We have a spring party, we call it the pre-madness. It's potluck, B-Y-O-B. It's everyone come to party and talk and stuff before the madness begins of the summer. Mm. And then we have another party at the end of September called the, the, uh, the harvest party. Potluck, B-Y-O-B, it's always B-Y-O-B. <laughs> you know, it's always potluck. <laughs> potluck, is, please, you know, never have a party that's not potluck. Right. But, um, so, so we have these parties, and people new to these parties, you know, they'll, they'll mention to us later on, they'll say, they'll say, God, you know, I walked around, and everyone was talking about dirt. You know, they were talking <laughs> about, like, soil, you know, and plants. You know, well, yeah, you know, that's, that's what we are. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's who we are. That's our world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So back to your soil. So how often are you checking your soil and what like methods do you use to analyze your soil and then choose if maybe you need to amend something? I mean, what does that process kind of look like? A lot of my soils are built from the same basic building blocks. The compost I make, Mm -hmm. um, the the coffee grounds, the leaves, all this kind of stuff. Um, We started out the soil, the dirt around here and the soils around here typically our 7.0 pH, about a neutral pH. There's not a lot of acidic soils around here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even the soil, even the, the soil in the forest there, a pine forest, tends to be, it's not an overly acidic uh, soil. So with that in mind, um, if a soil is going to get out of whack in terms of pH, it's because I'm adding some stuff, mm. wrong stuff. And if I'm adding the wrong stuff, I can look at that plant. The plants will tell me if my soil is lacking something. If I see yellow, yellowing leaves, I can tell, oh, well, maybe, you know, I may, maybe I need a little more nitrogen or something like this. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I'll send in samples to the Cooperative Extension, mm-hmm. and I'll get some soil testing. They'll tell me the pH, the organic uh, percentage, um, the, the macronutrients, some of the micronutrients. If I really want to do a periodic, you know, um, hardcore analysis, I'll send it to, I'll get soil samples, and I'll send excuse me, these are a little more expensive, to a place in Ohio called Logan Labs. Mm. 
And Logan Labs, you send them samples, and they come back. I mean, they have this sheets of, of, <laughs> of just incredible, I mean, copper, molybdenum, all this kind of stuff, you know, percentages, mm-hmm. what, what it should be, what it is. And so that'll give you a very sharp picture. And so you can take that. And with 36 beds, I can't be doing this for every bed. Right. Cooperative Extension, you know, their tests are like 30 bucks. So, you know, over the course of a season, yeah, I can do 10 beds, you know. Mm-hmm. And if I do my beds, if I, if, if I space my beds, my beds are scattered around. If I space my beds around like this, then I don't have to do every bed. I can do, two, I can do a bed here, and I know that this one next to it, I just I added the same stuff to it. Mm-hmm. So it should be pretty close. So yeah. I can get an idea of those soils. Um, a lot of times I'll taste it. I mean, I eat yeah. dirt. You know, I eat soil, and 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 you know, That's I'll put awesome. a little, I'll put a little bit on my tongue, yeah. and uh, and you can tell, you know, sometimes there's a, there's a sour taste to it if it gets real acidic and wet and this kind of stuff, um, and, and so the other way you can tell what's happening with your soil too is by the weeds. Mm. Look at your gardens. Look at your lawns. What weeds are growing there? Are they're growing there because conditions for that weed is just perfect for that weed. Mm. And so you can tell, and there's a book, there's a book I have, <laughs> what, what Weeds Tell Us. And it'll, it'll lay out, you know, some of the soil conditions that are needed to grow these weeds. Of course, there are weeds in this life, thistle, uh, that, um, <laughs> that, you know, they'll, they'll grow everywhere, you know, and those are the bane of my existence. Mm. I pull them constantly. And, and I have to admire them, though, because under some of the beds, under some of these beds that I have where the thistles will pop up like this, I know that, I know that like maybe 12 inches down underneath that soil, there is this neural network of thistle roots, and it exists. I have a tool called a broad fork, you know, and I'll dig it in, I'll pop up a big old chunk of the soil, and there'll just be this network of white roots that are thistles. You know, and I break up the clods, and I pull out all these roots. This is a six by 30 bed. I'll spend hours, you know, breaking these clods up, you know, and then pulling these thistle roots out, you know, and I'll think, damn, Tom, you did, you done good on that one. Yeah, yeah, right. Three months later, you know, it's like pop, pop, you know, they're they're coming back up, and it's like, like, yeah, sure, yeah, good job, Tom, good good job. It just drives you crazy, but... You know, it gives you something to do. It just, you know, otherwise you'd just be bored out there. Yeah. If everything was perfect, it was like, eh. I know. If you weren't learning along the way, what fun would it be? That's right. And that's the beauty of of this small farm thing is it's like every day is being in school. You know, and and, and I say that jokingly, but at the same time, I'm absolutely serious. I can't believe how much I've learned. Nine years ago, I said, I knew nothing. I mean, you, you can't imagine how little I knew. And now... I know everything. I, mean, <laughs> I know everything. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm my, fluttering my fingers around the microphone. Um, but, uh, but no, no. Um, I know so much more now, and it's because of mistakes and successes and, and, and all this kind of stuff and the reading and the, and the conversations in my community and, uh, that, that, that has taught me this. Mm. It's just amazing. Well, that um, is a great question. So what is something that you wish um, you would have known when you first began farming? I have, this is an admission that I, (laughs) 
this is an admission of, of something that uh, that that I I really don't tell this very often. So Ooh, awesome. our farm, you get our the secrets. our <laughs> one acre. It's not a secret. It's like it's like it's like like glue my hand. Oh. <laughs> when we moved onto my land, I I knew I knew about exposure. You know, southern, western, <laughs> eastern, all this kind of stuff. I knew the benefits of that, but it wasn't until it had to be the end of the second season, second year of growing on my land. I was literally, I was walking through the, I was walking in my garden, you know, looking around. I'm ADD. So as I get tired of a job, I'm walking around looking for other like five minute jobs to do. I'm walking around, you know, and I'm looking like this and, and, and I look, I look west and then I, I look east, I, I look south. My truck, in my truck is a, I even have a compass in my truck, you know, just so I know where I'm going. And uh, I stop for a second and the revelation comes to me that, wow, we bought this land and it has great southern exposure. I mean, the south is right over there and it goes west just like this for 10 or 12 hours. You know, and it's like, I have this great western exposure. And it was, a, it was literally a revelation. I just didn't know enough to really know the importance of the orientation of our land. Plus, when we moved on to our land, I didn't know it was clay. I didn't know it was silt and rock. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that all came out later. Um, but so that was those two, you know, and that's, you know, I used to be embarrassed sometimes by, by some of these, you know, some of these duh moments, you know, that, mm. that we have. But now, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know we had Southern and Western exposure, but you know, I do now. So, you know, life is good and, and, and we, everything's good. We had Pat Munts on last episode and she mentioned about how someone came up to her and said, they were going to start a farm on this land that they were thinking about buying. And then they were like, now they realize that this land was not going to be able to do the farm that they wanted to do. Would you have still have done? Obviously, you knew no. that. You wouldn't have. No, no, I would have. Yo, you, you sold about your land. You sold about your land. I'm sorry. I, I, jumped, the, the, I jumped on you. The I question was, uh, if, knowing what you know now, like, would you have bought the land? Would you look for different like more nutrient rich rich land would that change i I don't know i don't know like what again i was so dumb i don't know if i would have or not (laughs) i didn't know i didn't know that that clay and rock that i had Mm. could be turned into nine to ten inches of just gorgeous Mm. loamy soil with beautiful tilth um after you know after nine years yeah i I didn't know that i had no clue Mm. um so the, when we looked at that land, we looked at this beautiful little place in the woods. It had a double wide on it. It had a big shop. It had a tiny house, a little guest house, and it had a well house. Hmm. And it was, it was um, secluded without being isolated. It's 10 minutes from the Y here in town. And so Tori needed to be close to town so she could go in to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I... No, we we looked at that and we it was like, like yeah yeah this is the place we really mm-hmm. like this and our friends come down once in a while from Alaska or other places they'll visit and they'll drive into the driveway and they'll come up to the house and we'll get out we'll be big, big hugs and they'll say they'll say wow this is like this is like driving into a park mm. you know and it is I mean I I walk around that place sometimes. Um, and now after 10 years of this kind of thing, realizing what we have and what it means to, to be part of a forest environment, 
Um, and it's like, it gives me chills sometimes. It's just like this, like, you know, whoa, what did we fall into? Because it really was. We just fell into the price was great, but, uh, <laughs> but we just <laughs> fell into this. And then again, I come back to, I mean, September, September 2011, we moved on to it. Mm. January 2012, I started my permaculture class. And permaculture opened my eyes to what I could do. Every other weekend we met, I would go home and I would, boom, I would start applying some of those lessons mm -hmm. to this place. I have to say, though, too, um, my neighbor down below me is just, her husband had died years before. They, had a tw they have a 27-horse Kubota tractor. And her husband had bought these attachments, mm. nice attachments. <laughs> and so... Um, so I inter we introduced ourselves. I, I talked to her, and I said, and I said, I said, I notice you have a tractor there. And this is a good Christian woman. She is just generous as the day is long. She just, uh, she's a wonderful person. She knows I'm not, but, <laughs> but, uh, but she's this way. And I said, you know, could I rent that tractor from you? And she looked at me. and She said, Nah, no, 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 no. Just take it. Keep it up there as long as you want. Oh, wow. As long as you want to. And so I took that tractor up there, and one of the attachments was uh, kind of diverging a little bit. One of the attachments, though, were these thick steel claw that fit on the front of it. It was for grabbing logs and mm. carrying them around and stuff. Well, I realized I could open those claws, tilt it down a bit, and then into the hillside of our farm, I could dig it and drag it. Mm. And so I went 200 feet in each direction with that claw hour after hour, day after day, starting sometime in February 2012, digging, dragging, and trying trying to get perhaps a little bit better, easier grade to farm on. Uh, because every farmer I know likes to farm on level, of some form of level. Right. And so I dig into this clay and silt, and it was like rocks. I mean, it was thousands. Oh I had piles of rocks, and and this and this clay, the silt, silt, Phil, silt, and uh, and so uh, and so this this silt and stuff. And so I would drag it down to the edge of the driveway that would border the, our farming area, and so that way I was able to bring the grade up just a little bit more. Mm. Permaculture taught me, told me about hugel beds, hugel culture. Yes, uh, which, I want to ask you about which that. I embraced, <laughs> I embraced hugel. You know, I was just, I, 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 I like to liken myself to a little bird, a little baby bird in a nest, you know, whose mouth is always open, and the parent <laughs> comes and just feeds it, you know, with all the stuff, and the bird takes it without condition. I just, uh, everything. I embraced hugel culture. Make sure and check out episode two of the rest of our interview with Tom Foote from Foothills Farm. Rocks to Roots is sponsored by the Office of Farmland Preservation. Office of Farmland Preservation is a program within the Washington State Conservation Commission that works to address the rapid loss of working farm and forest lands in our state. Together, the Washington State Conservation Commission and conservation districts provide voluntary, incentive-based programs that empower private landowners to implement conservation on their property. 
You can learn more about their programs and services by visiting their website, scc.wa.gov. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rocks to Roots. Please make sure to subscribe to our Rocks to Roots channel. And also, more importantly, please leave us a review. That's the only way we can get better.